did you ever see one of those movies or cartoons where there's a plot device of a bomb that's about to go off and it has a really long fuse. And there's this moment of suspense where you see the fuse burning and snaking along the ground and the main character has to try to jump on top of the fuse or cut it before the flame reaches all the way to the bomb and it explodes. That is a good analogy that I often use for overriding a spook, or in other words, how to maintain control and how to maintain your balance and maintain your seat and not escalate the situation if your horse spooks or scoots or reacts to something. I'll give you a very common example of where people get in trouble with horses. Say someone is riding around, and well, this is actually a good example from a horsemanship clinic we, we hosted a few years ago. So in spite of us telling everybody uh, during the first morning session of groundwork that after the lunch break, the first riding session in the afternoon would not start until everybody was in the arena. In other words, these are horses and riders we'd never worked with before. We had done a session of groundwork in the morning, but we were going to get everybody on all at once just for the safety of the group and also be able to identify if there was any horses that were really struggling or that were out of control or there was any situations where there was going to be a safety issue, we could then deal with that and, and not have things escalate, right? Well, this one woman, in spite of our telling the group that, she insisted on getting her horse out early before the rest of the class had returned to the arena, and she was going to lope around and, and ride around in the arena. And she happened to be going around an end, and we're kind of in a rodeo-type arena that had like bucking chutes and roping boxes and a chute and stuff. And actually, in one corner of the arena, there was a mechanical bull that bull riders use for practice sitting over there. The horse sees this contraption, presumably for the first time, or maybe it had seen it earlier in the groundwork, but now there's a different element, right? You change elements. To the horse, this is an unfamiliar situation now. He's got a human on his back. He comes around the corner of the arena, suddenly spots this mechanical bull with like tarps and padding all over it and around it. So to him, this is a really spooky, scary object, right? So the horse kind of scoots sideways just to get a little more distance away from that scary object. And what does this rider do? Well, because number one, she wasn't expecting it and she wasn't riding proactively. Number two, she was a poor rider with very poor balance. And number three, because her horse reacted so quickly, she naturally had a lot of fear, obviously, when that happened. So for those reasons, she ends up getting off balance in the saddle. And as a consequence, rather than like slowly drawing the horse's nose around into a circle or a one rein stop to bring the horse back under control, she absolutely reefs this rein around and, and yanks this horse's nose around to its butt almost. Well, by jerking on the horse's mouth that hard and by putting it in that level of a bind when it has already reacted out of fear to something, that would have been like what she effectively did in that situation is like in the bomb example I used from the cartoon or the TV show rather than the main character snipping the fuse just in time before the flame reaches the bomb, she took like a can of gas and like helped accelerate the fire to get to the bomb faster and created this huge explosion. 
So needless to say, she got dumped. Now, luckily, she wasn't hurt, and she also admitted that she acted very foolishly, okay? But that is a good example of what happens to people every single day, whether they're riding around in the arena or whether they're on trails. There's all kinds of situations where people's horses are reacting to something, and in a lot of cases, it's a very natural reaction for the horse to have. But then you have a second subsequent escalation on the part of what the human is doing in order to respond to that. I'll give you another very, very common example, okay? This often happens when people are starting horses under saddle, and we have talked about this on the podcast before. They neglect to simulate from the ground first what that horse will feel when the human is on its back and is bending its head and neck around either with the bridle or with the hackamore for the first time while that horse's feet are in motion. We've stressed this before on the podcast that that is why we will check or tie that rein around and do that in stages to introduce the horse to the concept of staying calm and relaxed even in that bind and how to follow a feel and soften to that pull rather than their natural instinct, which is to what? Fight harder against it. Because if you don't do that preparatory step, you can often get away with it. But eventually there will be a horse that this is what will happen to you. The horse will scoot or scamper or spook at something during one of these initial rides under saddle when you don't have a lot of control, okay? And then for your safety as well as the horse's, you will try to do a one rein stop or you will try to bring that horse's head around in some type of way in order to bring the horse back under control, at which point the horse will now, for the very first time, while he's already afraid and while the adrenaline is pumping and he's in a vulnerable situation, you are now putting him in a physical bind and applying this pressure either to his nose with the hackamore or to his mouth with the bridle in a way that he doesn't understand and isn't expecting. And it's an intense moment. He feels trapped and claustrophobic and his flight and self-preservation instincts kick in and that will escalate into a wreck. Often what horses will do when they feel that restriction, they will either start bucking or in most cases, what they'll do is they'll try to lunge their body forward and use their body weight to like tear the rein out of your hand. And they'll effectively fight that pressure just blindly, okay? Um, we made a podcast a while back about a friend of ours who that happened to her on a cult that she was starting uh, because she hadn't done that checking around stuff. And this horse was a little bit more hard-headed and resistant than your average colt. It had had some failed previous training. And when that happened and she tried to do a one rein stop to bring the horse under control, the horse started lunging forward and fighting her so hard, it actually lost its balance and fell down in the round pin. So even if the horse isn't trying to outright buck you off, just because they're in a blind panic and trying to fight their way out of that pressure that they don't understand and they haven't been taught how to relax to it and soften and submit to it. They don't understand that, right? They're just in a blind fright trying to get out of that situation. Even if they're not trying to physically buck you off, they could still put you and them in a very vulnerable spot, crash into the fence, fall down, simply because that horse is so focused on resisting 
pressure and fighting its way out of that bind, it loses track of where its feet are and where its balance is, okay? These types of situations happen constantly, and I was talking with a owner who's potentially going to send her horse for training the other day, and we had this conversation, and the, the way I kind of put this image together is this. It's a two-part equation to solve these types of problems. On one hand, on a training level, we need to be teaching our horse habits about how to respond to and relax and submit to that type of pressure. You know, I, I have this saying, and it comes from the military, where they talk about how when shit hits the fan and you're under an intense amount of stress and there's a lot happening, you default to the level of your training, right? When you don't have time to think, you just need to act quickly and act now, it comes down to training. And so it's the same with horses. You know, yes, they are flight animals. They're going to react to things occasionally. Even the best trained horses are still going to have goofy moments every now and again although it'll be way less frequent if they have a really good foundation. And like I was telling this horse owner on the phone, a well-trained horse does not simply whirl and bolt and blast off into a bucking fit just because they reacted to, say, a pheasant flying up on the trail. A well-trained horse at most, they might start, like kind of startle a little bit, kind of be surprised in place, or in the worst case, say if they're riding around an arena and there's a particular spooky object nearby, they will want to maintain kind of a radius of distance away where they feel a little more comfortable. So they'll kind of shy a little bit, but they're not just gonna outright like try to fling off the human, fling off all the tack and go running off into the distance like a wild Mustang, just completely refusing and rejecting any human presence or effort to bring the horse under control, to redirect their feet, right? A, an ill-trained or an untrained horse is gonna have that reaction. A better trained horse with a better foundation is not gonna overreact to that level. And if they do react to something, they can rely on the level of their training that you have taught them through simulated experience and lots and lots of repetition, how to not only respond to and soften and defer to the guidance of the human on their back, even when there's something unfamiliar or stressful in the environment, that you're still able to get through to that horse mentally to re-engage their focus, right? But you're also able to then re-engage with the object and approach it and try to provoke a little bit of courage and a little bit of curiosity, and that you've simulated these experiences enough with the horse that although they may be wary initially, they give you that trust that they're at least able to try something, which allows you to then work through the experience. And every time you do something like that and you build the horse's confidence, you just deposit a little bit of money into that bank account of that trust between the two of you. And so those types of situations where the horse is genuinely fearful of something become less and less and less common until they're like an anomaly that happens maybe every once in a while. Right, But the vast majority of the time, that horse is completely relaxed because, again, it knows through habit and through training to the level of muscle memory what you're going to do in those situations to defer the control and the guidance in that situation to you and how to soften, how to respond to you, how to listen, how to re-engage their focus 
in spite of whatever's in the environment that is creating that initial reaction, okay? So there's a lot that we can do on a training level to get the horse to where even if they're gonna react to something, it's in a much safer and controlled way where we can easily step in and provide that guidance and the horse just doesn't check out mentally and is completely unreachable and just decides to go off and do their own thing because they don't trust or even care that there's somebody on their back, right? A lot of horses are like that because they have a bad foundation. If you've done your job correctly, you're not gonna run into that type of stuff. However, there is another side to this equation. So we've got the training angle that fixes a lot of it. And as I've talked about in previous podcasts, you can even get a horse to a level where they will accept and not overreact to an accidental overpressure. Like I talk about in my training all the time, I realize for a lot of the horses we take in, they're going to be ridden by people who will on occasion accidentally kick the horse harder than they meant to or accidentally pull on the horse's mouth harder than they meant to or that was reasonable or necessary to do what they're trying to get done accomplished. And I don't want to have that result in the horse exploding into a bucking fit or kicking out at that rider's leg or trying to rear up and flip over because they've never been subjected to an unfair amount of pressure before. The horse knows how to respond to that and try to do what the human is asking in spite of the ham-fisted, poor feeling timing way that the human asks for it. Okay, so that is definitely a goal in our training. However, there's a lot of responsibility on the human as well to get better. Like that, that uh, example I used earlier, if you have better balance, if you have an independent seat, meaning you don't have to physically hang on to your horse's mouth and clutch them with your legs in order to maintain your balance. A good way to envision an independent seat is could you ride a horse at a walk truck canter bareback and bridleless. If you can, that means you have the core strength and the balance and the trust to stay upright and move with the horse in a fluid way instead of ramming, McJamily fighting, you know, your body position and momentum and bouncing up and down in the saddle is counteracting and fighting the horse's rhythm. That would be a, a, an inexperienced rider with poor balance and poor feel and timing. As a consequence of that poor balance, they don't even realize how their legs are maybe accidentally kicking and jabbing the horse, how their hands are accidentally uh, bumping on, pulling on, casually teaching the horse to be stiff, having you know the horse getting frustrated because they, the human just will not leave their mouth alone, right? And horses know when you know and they know when you don't. They can sense somebody on their back who is inept and has poor feel and timing and they have the same reaction that one of us would have if we walked into, say, a grocery store and we walked up to the register to try to pay for something or to ask a question and the person at the register did not speak a single word of English, right? They might not be a bad person. They might be an amazing person who is the kindest, sweetest person you've ever met. But if they don't speak your language and you can't communicate with them, you can't do anything. Nothing happens. There's a total breakdown of communication, regardless of the good intentions, right? If you can't communicate what you're trying to do or what you need, nothing is going to move. 
And that's often what a horse feels like when they have a poor rider with terrible feel and timing on their back is like, okay, clearly this person is not congruent with me, doesn't understand anything about what we're doing. I'm, you know, is, is effectively that horse senses there's no two-way communication happening. This person is just up there and that horse can really tune them out, right? Which horses get good at. Some horses get very good at tuning out ineffective poor riders with subpar feel and timing to the point where that rider is effectively a non-factor and that horse is going where it wants to. Horses get very, very clever about that. They get clever about sensing the ability and the awareness of who's on their back. So getting your skills up to par as a rider is just as important an element of instilling that confidence as your horse having a really excellent foundation of training. Those two pieces have to come together. Now, here's the good news about that. Riding a better horse with a really good foundation that is miles above you in terms of skills if you are a beginner rider. If you have enough time and enough repetition on that trained horse and the guidance from a trainer who is teaching you how to replicate and go through, put basically put the horse through its paces, replicate every exercise that that horse knows, if that horse has been trained to a high enough level, that horse's skills and ability can fill in the gaps where your feel and timing as a rider is still shaky or inconsistent. The horse is able to piece together okay, I think this is what she means. If you're, say, asking for a maneuver, you're asking for a side pass, you're asking for that horse to move their shoulder off, do a little bit of a counter arc, you're asking that horse to soften and bend on a circle, you're asking for a lead departure, whatever the maneuver or the cue is, maybe you're inconsistent about how you apply your leg. Maybe you forget to use the voice cue that the horse knows in conjunction with what your hands and legs are doing. Maybe you pick up and you're more timid and not as smooth or effective or proficient as the trainer would be, you know, to soften the horse's face in a particular way. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you pick up in a ham-fisted Neanderthal type way instead of having feel and timing about it. Regardless of whatever the mistake is, the horse is able to piece together, okay, I think this is what they mean and, and put their best effort forward regardless. In other words, the horse, because they're more skilled than you, can actually teach you. The horse can actually help you bridge that gap to get that job done and get you up to a certain level. Now, there's people that scoff at that idea. And I want to I clarify that what I'm talking about is a situation where you have either a trained horse that you've never worked with before or your horse that has been you, the two of you have been separated for a while, for a period of time, say six to eight weeks, your horse has been rapidly advanced to a way higher level because that trainer has more skills than you and is able to put more consistent time in to really give your horse a much better foundation that you can actually rely on because they're able to do that much more consistency and repetition than you would be. Now they bring you back into the picture and guide you through the process of getting back up to speed of what your horse already knows, okay? That is either one of those, either getting a trained horse that you learn on or getting your horse trained to a way higher level and then you step back into the picture and work with a trainer to then rapidly advance your skills.
Both of those models are vastly superior to struggling through lessons with your horse simultaneously. In other words, your horse doesn't quite know yet, they are not consistent, so they're not able to rely on that training when you have a misstep or a miscue. They are not able to fill in those gaps and help you. So they're struggling, they're green, they don't fully understand the exercises yet. You are struggling, you are making tons of mistakes, and in fact inhibiting your horse's progress in a lot of ways. And even if you're working with the world's best horse trainer, your progress in that, in, under that model of learning together, that's going to be slower than if your horse was advanced way ahead of you first and then you step back in and get to reap all those benefits. That, just as a side note, is why I tell people, no, when you send horses for training, not until we have the foundation you want on your horse are we going to consider bringing you out here for lessons and training, which we do a lot of once the training is complete, or at the very least, there's a period in that horse's training. Say that horse is there for three months, but we make a plan that, okay, after six weeks of continuous, high-consistency, intensive practice, your horse will be solid enough at these skills that you can come start taking lessons and practicing them because your horse knows them well enough at that point. Even though the training is not completely finished yet or where we ultimately want to get to, things are solid enough that you can start reaping those benefits and building some momentum here. Rather than just crawling up the ladder at a snail's pace, you let your horse pull you ahead and teach you because his skills got advanced first and then you're able to speed up your own learning process by basically having the horse teach you in a way, all under the guidance, of course, of that trainer. But going back and, and probably the main point I wanted to make in this podcast here today is on this issue of confidence because I really believe it is a two-part equation. The better you get your balance, your feel and timing, and just knowing on a tactical training level how to overcome or ride through certain situations where you don't have to be a professional horse trainer, but you understand horse psychology enough and you have some tools in your tool bag to apply in certain sticky situations where maybe your horse is wary of something or isn't sure, you're able to show them something that gets them re-engaged with you mentally, builds their confidence, and ultimately creates a positive outcome. And that's like I alluded to earlier, you have this positive feedback loop over time through building your relationship with that horse, where whenever you encounter something that's maybe gives the horse a little bit of pause, they're not real sure, right? And if you handled that situation poorly, it would break their confidence. Instead, you handle it well, that horse comes out the other end more confident and their trust in you grows. And it's this virtuous cycle over time where the things that the horse reacts to become less and less. And even if they do encounter something unfamiliar, they defer to you a lot more because you've made that confidence a habit, right? You've actually put that into practice. And a big component of that is obviously getting your skills and your feel and timing and your balance better as a rider so you can physically do these things. And also that you aren't lost and unsure when they happen. You aren't, in other words, taken by surprise by something that your horse does or something that they react to. You know horse psychology well enough 
and you understand your horse's training well enough and how to maintain things well enough that you're not taken aback and left mentally reeling and puzzled over how to react if your horse reacts to something, okay? So you getting to a higher level is half the battle. The other half is your horse needs a way better foundation so that you have that ability to rely on your training rather than the horse mentally checking out and not even looking for your leadership or guidance the moment something happens, okay? I can tell you, on the best trained horses, yes, are they going to react to things? Absolutely. It is not reasonable to, unless your horse is a genetic outlier, like literally won the genetic lottery and is so domesticated and quiet and forgiving that they never spook, okay? But if you're listening to this podcast, if you are like one of the, you know, one per million people that gets a horse like that, you're lucky. You won the genetic lottery. I don't have anything to offer you as a trainer because your horse is already perfect, okay? But for the majority of you listening, like me, we're not the lottery winners. We have a horse that is going to react to things, some more than others, depending on breeding and temperament. That's why it's kind of a lifelong process, number one, to get the right foundation put on your horse so you have the tools to address it. And then knowing how to be competent with those tools when the time arises. This is an analogy that I use for that all the time, and I'll kind of finish with this. It's like, when we go hauling to horse shows and stuff, in our trailer, we have a jack, we have uh, equipment for fixing tires, we have a spare tire, we have all basically everything that we need to fix or replace a flat tire, um, or if there's something wrong with the trailer, if we have a breakdown, we've got a whole bunch of tools there that we can fix that and either you know pull off to the side of the road or pull into a truck stop change the tire, fix whatever, and then get back on the road. Same thing like the car that you drive to work every day. If you know where the tools are, say, if you get a flat tire, or if you get in a wreck and you have one of those, uh, I don't know, AAA or OnStar, whatever, whatever those systems are um, on your car, that you can immediately alert somebody that's going to come out, give you a tow, give you a fix, whatever it is, right? If you have the tools but you also have the knowledge, like you know how to fix a flat tire. You know, for example, how to get the spare tire from off the bottom of your car or your truck. You know how to change a tire and then you're good to go. So when you're driving in an unfamiliar place or you're on bad quality roads, you're not sitting there scared, paranoid and silently panicking. What if I get a flat? You know, I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody out here to help me. Ah, you don't feel that way because you trust in yourself that you have the tools and you know at least you have enough rudimentary knowledge you can change a flat tire. It's not a huge deal if it happens. It's a pain in the butt and yeah, it's going to cost you now to get that other tire fixed if you take it into a tire shop, but you're not totally dead in the water and stranded if you get a flat tire, right? But if you don't have the knowledge of what to do, and you don't have, say, say you're in an area with zero cell phone reception, so you can't rely on your AAA, you know, to come out there and save the day. And you also have no ability to fix your car or even change a flat tire or do basic maintenance on it. And you're driving out in the middle of Death Valley and you break down. Oh, yeah, you're going to be panicking at that point, right? Because you, you, you lack the tools 
or you lack the knowledge of how to use them, even if the tools and everything are on the car, you have no idea even where to start, and you've got nobody around that you can ask for help. That's a lot scarier situation than someone who's much more self-sufficient getting a breakdown on the interstate and then just being able to pull off, boom, 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 10, 15 minutes later, you're back driving on the road again. Totally different experience. And that's where that is such a difference maker with your horses as well. If you have, number one, the tools, you know what they are and you know how to use them, it's nobody's saying that you have to be a professional mechanic. You just need to have enough rudimentary knowledge and your skills need to be enough to where you're not actively getting in your own way, right? But if you have the tools there, meaning your horse has that foundation on them that you can rely on, and you know how to make use of it when times get a little bit tough, and you're also, you have access to a trainer or someone knowledgeable that even if you come out of a situation where it's like, hmm, my horse kind of spooked at a trail bridge, and so here's what I did, you know, based on what you showed me in our lesson, um, and it seemed to work really well, like the horse then crossed it several times relaxed, did I do the right thing? Or maybe, yeah, I went to a show and my horse really had trouble with X, Y, and Z, you know, and I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing. Um, can you walk me through that? That's where a trainer or a guide is the icing on the cake at that point. But the real difference maker is your skills and then having the tools actually at your disposal to rely on. Most people are struggling because they either A, don't have the tools in the first place, meaning they're driving out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have a spare, they don't have any tools, and the gas tank needle is on E. So you are incredibly vulnerable if even the slightest thing goes wrong. That would be an example of what it feels like to ride a horse with a crappy foundation or none at all. Your horse has an incomplete foundation, you are very vulnerable because you have nothing to rely on or even make use of if something bad happens, okay? Or the other side of the coin is that horse has a great foundation. They have the tools at the rider's disposal, but the rider is too inept to use them. So in both cases, both human and horse, it's a skill issue, isn't it? And that's why Amy and I are in the business that we are in. And that's why we focus on both sides of the equation, not just one, not just teaching and, and doing clinics and lessons and rider instruction, and not just doing the training to where the horse is riding like a million dollars for the trainer, but the owner can't get it to go forward or pick up the correct lead. We need both. We absolutely need both. And that's why we've had a lot of interest recently in our Dream Horse Academy training program. We cover both ends of that equation and take horses and riders to a far higher level. We are the best at doing that currently in the industry. So if you want to find out more about that program, there's a link in the description below. You can just go to LundahlPerformance.com. Or if you're listening to this on audio and you're like, I don't know how to spell Lundahl, <laughs> like 90% of the people that listen to us, okay, go to ColtStarting.com. ColtStarting.com, that's just a shorthand way of getting to our website where you can find out about our training programs and the stuff that we offer. Appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you again soon.